it played out in front of me in Starbucks. This little girl, probably three or four, just could not help but handling everything in the sandwich in the juice box bin. She arranged them, she held them, she moved them. Her mother kept taking out of her hand and putting them back. And then the mother finally set the boundaries. You will not touch that anymore. Then I watched it. The little girl's eyes went from the things to her mom. And the things and her mom. And eventually, the things won out. Her eyes had captured what she wanted, and the temptation was too great, and she was taken in. I have three other stories to tell about Starbucks, but we have kids with us today, so I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> because sin is not only coiling at the door of three- and four-year-olds, it's coiling at all of our doors. We're in the second in our series, Doors in the Bible. Last week, we were told to put God's Word on the doors of our houses, and the implication is on the doors of our hearts. And we're going to find out why, because there is sin coiling outside the door. And we need to be well prepared to do battle. Now, our passage today is a very serious one. And it's serious because we see God's love embedded in the whole story. If you look close enough, you're going to see grace. Grace that comes in a warning and grace that comes in a rescue. It's so rich, I just want to walk through the passage with you. So open your Bibles again to Genesis 4. I want us to be prepared... Because here we sit in the house of the Lord with the Word of God over everything, reminding you that even the wood behind these beautiful spaces is lined with God's Word. But we're all going to have to leave here. And there's another word that's coming to us. We need to be prepared. Verse 1, now Adam and Eve, his wife, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, I just want to stop for a moment. This is the first sign of grace in the story. The last time we saw Adam and Eve, they're running. And now in blessing, I love the way Eve describes her blessing of getting a son. The Lord has done this with his help. I'm getting goosebumps already about this passage. It doesn't matter how much we've blamed and it doesn't matter how much shame we've been in. God rescues us and restores relationship. And Adam and Eve are restored. With the help of the Lord, I've gotten a son. Verses 2 through 4a. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. These two bring the offering of their hands, which is out of their work. Uh, immediately, we're caught into early conflict, uh, having lived in Mali. Husbandry and farming are tension friends. In Mali, 
to fertilize the fields, you need the animals that are being walked by all the shepherds. But you hate the shepherds walking their animals across your fields. And the shepherds feel the same way about the landowners, who it seems like they have an easier life than they do. This is an age-old tension. We don't feel it as much here because we don't live in this kind of life. But in the biblical times, people would have immediately recognized people that work the land and people that are in animal husbandry are not close friends. And the oldest conflict in history, brothers. You will not find people that love one another more than brothers, and you will find, not find people that hate one another more than brothers. It's amazing how brothers can be in conflict and someone from the outside steps in and they both turn on that person, right? This is age old and it's in the biblical text. Isaac and Ishmael, Esau and Jacob, Joseph and all of his brothers. There's turmoil. This is a result of the fall. This was not God's intent for us. It was to be into, in good relationship, but we see it right here, even in the first family. It should give us some ease about the families we live in and understand the nature of what's going on. Then the response to the offering in 4b and 5. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now, this is an interesting text that has had a lot of work by commentators. God accepts one offering and rejects the other. What it tells us at the bottom line is that there is a worship that's acceptable to God and there's a worship that's not acceptable to Him. And so we should give careful thought to the worship that we bring to the Lord. Now, some commentators have tried to make a distinction between the two offerings. One brings meat and one brings vegetables, as if to suggest God prefers meat to veggies. I think he does, but <laughs> he gives provision in the law later that both offerings are acceptable to him. So I have to read this through the rest of Scripture, and the rest of Scripture says that God wants a worship that comes from a heart that is truly his. The main point of this passage is not the difference in the offering in its physical content. The main point is the heart behind the offering. It's spiritual worship versus carnal worship. God looks at the heart. In fact, Jesus quotes Isaiah at one time before the Pharisees. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So the bottom line of the text is, two brothers are bringing their offering. One, it appears that his heart is away from God. It causes him to become angry, and his face is turned down. Verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? Now, just let me unpack that for a little minute, a moment. God is always intersecting us to stop us on the path of sin. Paul's going to say to the church in Corinth, you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. There are always moments where God's bringing his word in and he steps into Cain's life and he says, Cain, you're on a slippery slope and I want to catch you here. Uh, anger, remember, anger is always a secondary emotion. It's not a primary emotion. Anger is a response in frustration, fear, jealousy, or pride. 
And so when anger comes up in me, I want to go underneath to find out what's going on there. When anger comes against me, when I'm in my better moments, I try to dismiss the anger and find out what's going on under the surface of the person who's angry. But that tells us something about what's happening here. There's somewhat of a rejection that's happening in Cain himself in these moments. And then his face fell, he goes to shame. These are the age-old struggle of the human situation. We sin, our first response is to blame. Once we finally acknowledge our sin, as we go to shame, our face has fallen, and now the enemy has us. You say, well, this is a lot of detail in the text. This is going to be important to know how we deal with this text moving forward. God has put things in His Word that will rescue us this week. If we will allow these things to go deep. Verse 7, God goes on, he says this, If you do well, will, not, will you not be accepted? It's, it's moved beyond his offering to him. Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Here is the whole point of the text. We are all caught in the turmoil of choice. Every day and every moment of our life, we are living with choices that we will either live unto God's way or we will live unto another way. I wish I could make life easier for us, but it never goes away. When we're on vacation, we still live before choices. When we're on Sabbath, we still live before choices. And the Lord is challenging these early brothers, and especially Cain, do well. Do well. Remember, there's an undergirding of grace that's happening in this passage. Sin is crouching at your door. Um, probably the better way to translate it would be sin is coiling at your door. This Hebrew verb is one that's used for animals that are crouching, that are ready to jump forward. Uh, I had to contact Brian Woodbin this week because I really wanted to find out about this passage. I thought I'd heard him say something about this a long time ago. And I said, Brian, can we translate this coiling rather than crouching? And this is what he wrote. Jewish exegesis settled this back in the 2nd and 3rd century. The word ravats is appropriate for animals with elongated bodies like sheep, feline predators, and reptiles. So curled up or coiled up in the context of, th of chapter 3 is perfect. I think this suggestion makes sense since the close linguistic and structural connections between Genesis 3 and 4. The only animal appearing in a larger context is the snake. Are you starting to understand why I love God's Word so much? He has these clues hidden for us all the time when we'll dig deep. Sin is coiled. God's word is on the doorpost of your house and on your heart, but right around the corner is sin coiling, and it's personalized. The biblical record keeps bringing us back to this fact that we have an enemy of our soul. It's bad enough that our flesh is corrupt because of the original sin that's within us. We have a foot in Adam, we have a foot in Christ, but there's a personalized presence of evil that is operating with that and trying to bring us into temptation. It's contrary to us. And God says, you need to rule over it. We'll come back to that at the end. This is the grace of God's warning. Listen, friends. 
when God puts people in your life who are honest enough to talk to you about places that are dangerous in your life, do not reject them, invite them in. They are God's gift to you. Because grace is not only there after you've fallen, but grace is there before you've fallen to say, brother, sister, don't go this way. And whenever you hear messages preached from this pulpit in the years to come, and you have a faithful servant who says, be careful of this sin, do not allow that to become something that would cause you to reject the messenger, but say, God, thank you for sending me a messenger who's true to the word. To warn me in grace. Why? Because God's not waiting to punishing us. He wants the very best for us. God's cheering Cain on in these moments. Saying, I want something absolutely better for you, Cain. Someone said in our pastor hermeneutics this week, Eve was talked into her sin by Satan. Cain cannot be talked out of his sin by God. Wow. How many times has God said to me, Chuck, don't go that route, and in the moment of the flesh, I allowed the sin to win. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. I wish I had about 15 minutes, but just follow it. Anger, shame, hatred, murder. Sin is a progression. We don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to screw up my life. We wake up and there's slow process of moving. And they're very innocent things, it seems like, along the way. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Listen, this is still God's grace. He's giving Cain opportunity to voice his sin. God could have said, I know what you did, Cain. Because if he will own it, it will change his response to it in the future of what God is doing in his life. This is God's provision. Verses, verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can behold. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Uh, so much to unpack here, but you parents are going to lose your nerve if I get your kids with you here too much longer. <laughs> but see what is happening. God in his grace is calling Cain from sin, and we're going to see in a moment he's going to rescue him in his grace, but there are consequences. He's on this path of hiding his face and becoming a fugitive and becoming a wanderer, and now he's afraid. 
and the consequences seem overwhelming to him. See, when sin comes to us and we actually go there, and you know this, you've had this feeling like I've had this feeling at different times, another layer of sin comes in after I have sinned. It's pride, and I think I better hide myself from God because there's no way I can be in relationship with him. And the Lord's response to Cain talks about how his grace is a rescue as much as it's warning. The Lord says this, Not so. If anyone kills vain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Someone has said this, God's concern for the innocent is only matched by his care for the sinner. Mark this. God's concern for the innocent is only matched by his care for the sinner. If you doubt that, remember Jesus being on the cross when there was a true crook and one who takes on the sin of all others, how God responds to both of them. He is a God of rescue. He marks us for his name. So what's my so what this morning? Well, the first one is related to the message from last week that we have sin on the inside of our door. The psalmist says this, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There is no guarantee that God's word is going to help us make the right decision in the end, but it's the only spiritual conditioning that's going to get us ready for the attack that's coming from the outside. Even Cain, having God's physical word, wasn't enough for him. But the psalmist reminds us that if we will hide this word in our heart, we will give the Holy, the Holy Spirit something to use at the moment when temptation comes. And so we need to bury this word in our heart to give the Holy Spirit opportunity to help us in the time of trouble. My second so what is this. Sin has power. This is a grace warning. It has power in itself, and it has a bit of a personification to it. The only way that we can stop it is by naming it. So here's my advice to us this morning. Confess it early, confess it specifically, and confess it verbally. Not just to God, but to one another. Just follow me. I didn't plan to talk about this today, but this is too important for us as a people. It's very easy for me to confess to God, and because he's not here in the flesh, to somehow bury that forgiveness really quickly and not repent and turn from my sin. But what I've learned in my life is the things that I confess to trusted brothers and sisters around me that have been my struggle points when I bring them into the light, those things lose power over me and they make the repentance of turning to God that much, much stronger. We've lost the art of confessing to one another. And I'm not just talking about confessing in a booth where the person on the other side doesn't know you. I'm talking about sitting with people who are in faith journey with us and we say, please, will you pray with me because this is what's been warring at my soul 
And I need you to lock arms with me so that I can get through this to the other side. What if Cain had gone early and specifically and verbally with his sin? Maybe he would have gotten to a place that bitterness wouldn't have wrapped around his heart and he could have spent the rest of his life with his earthly brother. In the scripture text, it says, rule over it. I wasn't planning on talking to this, but Nathan talked about it in the prayer chapel beforehand. There's just so much in this text. How do you rule over the sin? I guess one of the men's Bible studies discussed it this week. Scripture says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and every power and dominion is underneath His feet, but He's waiting for His enemies to be made His footstool. The way you rule over sin is to call upon your position in Jesus Christ that you are seated with Him and every power and authority is underneath your feet, including the power and authority that is in your own flesh. You need to say to your flesh, flesh, be quiet. I preach to you now in Jesus' name. Some of you have never tried that. I highly recommend it. Right when the temptation's coming, speak to your flesh and line it up with what Jesus says. Third, so what? Sin has consequences. It's a grace warning. The first murder, interestingly, comes out of the context of worship. It's a real warning to me. Maybe some of the most significant sins that I commit is when I come into this place with a lackadaisical attitude and don't bring God my very best. Or when I try to cut corners during my week and my work, which is my worship to God. There is no such thing as a white lie. There is no such thing as a misdemeanor in the kingdom of God. It's all sin, name it. It's all way below the glory of God, and it's way below who you are as overcomers in Christ Jesus. So name it for what it is. Finally, there's gospel rescue. See, this word has been given to us to be an instruction manual so that we'll have victory from day to day, but always in the end, God gets the last word. What does God say when Cain is afraid that someone's going to take him out? The Lord says, no, it's not going to happen because I'm going to put boundaries around you. I'm going to mark you. Well, there's someone who was marked in a greater way that declares our protection over us. It hit me this morning. If the ground cried out from the blood of Abel, how much more the blood of Jesus cries out over us that we are set free not only from the penalty of sin, that we would tap into that grace, but the victory over sin so that we could walk out God's victory in this world, not in our own power, but the power of Jesus' name. That's our inheritance, friends. That's our inheritance. So marked ones, leave it at the table and take Jesus out.
because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen.